Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 12, a hall for smiles to die in. I'm Scatty, we have Brooke and Matt with us tonight as always. Oh. Hey. And we'll be going through what we always go through, that's five beastly chapters of George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. Uh, this this week that's Catelyn 8, Tyrion 7, Sansa 5, Eddard 15, and Catelyn 9. That's chapters 55 to 59 according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. A uh, quick reminder, as I do every episode, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast uh, during a special segment we call Davos After Dark. And don't worry, we always warn you with a nice little musical cue that that is coming up. And uh, just uh, a, a quick note, as of this recording, uh, you may have seen on the, the Twitter that uh, we've reached one, uh, I think we reached 100 Twitter followers, and we reached 10,000 listens kind of right in the same time frame. And I know we do this kind of every week, but thanks again for all the support. We're always just blown away, all three of us, by the quality of the fandom of A Song of Ice and Fire, and uh, these numbers are just a reminder of that. And uh, honestly, uh, I think Matt said it in the in the Twitter and Facebook posts, about 9,990 more listens than we ever thought we'd get. So um, <laughs> thanks again for the support. Speaking of yeah, that support, it's amazing. yeah. If you want to contact us uh, to provide feedback or ask us questions or whatever, you can reach out to us through DavosFingers.com, email at WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com, Twitter at DavosFingers, or find and like us on Facebook. And uh, one last quick note uh, is we have a uh, we had a birthday just recently of one of our one of our first and most dedicated followers, Heather. Wanted to send a quick shout out, happy birthday to her. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Heather. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday to you. We love you. All right. Well, uh, let's let's go ahead and dive in. We've got uh, Catlin 8 brought to us by Brooke today. Go ahead and jump on in there, Brooke. Words will cut you like Valyrian steel through a hand. She can't love Jon Snow, and she's sure to let you know where she stands. A devoted mother who married the brother of a dead fiancé. She's vengeful and hateful, loving and faithful. She's Catelyn, Catelyn Stark. So after losing Tyrion in the trial by battle... Catelyn and her uncle Brynden Blackfish have taken a ship to White Harbor and then an escort of the Manderleys, a house under Stark rule, to Moat Caitlin, where Rob has made camp to defend the north and make an aggressive attack on the Lannister armies coming up from the south. So she hadn't originally planned to meet up with Rob, but when they landed in the White Harbor, she learned that her son had called the Stark banners and she knew that he would need her support. So at Moat Caitlin, she finds Rob in council with the great John and Ruse Bolton and is greeted in a loving way by Grey Wind, uh, Rob Styrewolf. And it seems that Rob wants to give her the same greeting, but Catelyn knows that Rob needs to be treated like the man and liege lord he's becoming. So she just remarks on his beard, which is redder than his hair. Mmm, ginger beard. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, once they're alone... Catelyn lays it all out for Rob. Rob needs to be victorious against the Lannisters in battle, or else Sansa and Ned will be killed, and the rest of the North will be screwed too. Um, Rob receives conflicting advice from his bannermen on how he should use his army of 18,000. 
Should he stay at Moat Kalen and make it a defensive position? Because they're running low on supplies. Should he try and surprise Tywin Lannister's forces? Because Tywin is battle-tested and smart and could probably outthink them. And Catelyn doesn't tell him what to do. She just reminds him that he named himself Battle Commander, so he must be certain and he must command. So ultimately, his plan is a risky one. He wants to send his main force down the King's Road to meet Tywin Lannister coming up from the south, and a smaller force of riders down the western shore-ish to defend River Run. To get the riders to the west, they'll have to cross the Green Fork River, which is a huge deep river from all of its descriptions, at a bridge held by the Frey clan, who are bannermen of the Tullys of River Run, but not trustworthy. And we'll learn more about why they are trustworthy later. It's an offensive action, and Catelyn is proud of Rob's strategies, hearing a lot of Ned in him, especially when he announces that he'll be leading the horse riders on the more dangerous mission to defend River Run. Knowing that her father may be dying and her brother Edmure probably needs her help too, Catelyn opts not to return to Winterfell, but to come with Rob to River Run. Well summarized. Oh, thanks. It's getting dense. In these chapters, there's a lot happening. There's a lot of movement, mm-hmm. a lot of references to uh, people we kind of have to keep in the back of our mind. And we have the advantage of rereading these chapters and <laughs> going over them a second time to do the summaries and then discussing them at length, recording that discussion, then listening to that discussion <laughs> later. So we're, we're, really, we're really getting into the meat of it, but uh, it's not so easy on that first read. Yeah, hopefully our dedicated service to our listeners is helping them get through it as well and all the the density. It's so dense, in fact, that I don't know whether George noticed that or whatever, but in the Tyrion chapter coming up, he actually takes a second to just go, okay, hold on, here's a quick summary to catch up on (laughs) where everyone is. Like, this is what's happened in the last several chapters. This is a recap, right? He actually Mm -hmm. takes... A couple pages to do that. It's interesting. Proof that he favors Tyrion. <laughs> yeah. He's throwing him a bone. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Tyrion doesn't know any of this. I better catch him all up. Let's catch him up. <laughs> Good point. So I didn't linger on it very long, but a real theme in this chapter is Catelyn's reuniting with Rob and seeing how much she's changed and seeing how much respect and reverence he's receiving from his bannerman and how she reacts to that even because she is like full mother reaction on this totally afraid for him totally afraid for her family that he has called the banners and is marching south and uh when they first meet up and she gets him alone she's like wtf what are you doing why didn't you ask somebody else to do this you got the great john over here you got ruse bolton over there you got the you know rickard carsarks they all have experience they're all battle hardened they're all ready and rearing to go and here you are oh 50 year old rob stark with this little ginger beard (laughs) (laughs) and uh and at that point rob handles it really well actually I personally would have jumped on the defensive. I would have been like, I'm ready for it. I've been, you know, sitting next to Ned Stark all of my life, learning from him, listening, listening to uh, um, him interact with his bannermen at at dinner tables and, and out and, you know, wherever Ned patrolled. Anyways, I would have been like, I got this. I got this. But he's very, uh, he defers to Catelyn quite a bit. He's very humble. Yeah. And asks her, 
are you sending me back to Winterfell? <laughs> and yeah, and it, it is humanizing to see Rob slip back into being a boy, just, just that boy, just that teenager. And uh, it's admirable the respect he has for Catelyn, and and equally admirable that Catelyn isn't like I should, I should throw you over my knee, give you a spank, and uh, <laughs> on a mule, back. yeah, mule back up to Winterfell. But yeah. She's not. She 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 lets herself have her little rant, and then she steps back. She says, "Okay, how are we going to win this? this right. Here's what we need to do." So yeah. the power At of mothers. I, I think uh, you know my mom still has some of that power over me sometimes, right? Just kind of you you want to please them. You want you want you want to uh, I don't know. You you want you want to follow their guidance. They kind of always have that over you. But at the I'm, same time, I appreciate his um, uh, his resolve still. Yeah. He's still the first to mom, but when she asks, why can't the other guys do it? You know, his reply is, is firm and simple because yeah. I'm the start and I've got to do it. And she's and she's skating a nice – I think Brooke, Brooke said it well, but she's skating a nice line between parent and, and military commander, right? Uh, trying to – she knows some of the answers – She's kind of painting him toward those answers, but letting him come to them on his own, like Inception, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to make them have the idea themselves. If you haven't seen that movie, I just spoiled some of it for you. Um, Solid movie. <laughs> yeah, that movie's been it. out for a long time. If they haven't seen it yet, not your fault. Yeah, the top totally fell down at the end. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, we're we're back to some of some of the value that we've been missing from Kat lately. You know, she's not at her best riding out in the open with, uh, with Roderick Cassell and, and nabbing prisoners here and there. Uh, she's at her best with her kids and teaching them how to be. And, um, oh. and in counsel and, and in those types of situations. Yeah, but that does raise a question to me. I, I, I heard you, Brooke, say, you know, mention that she's asking Rob, why couldn't she let uh, Carstark do it, or the Great John, or Bolton? Why couldn't she? Let, why couldn't Rob let any of these other people do it? I would have asked her the same question: Why can't you let other people advise me? You have two other boys back at home that need your guidance. That's where you belong. Be a mother to them. She even mm. paints. She even paints it as as a risk. Right? There are so many ways that this whole war effort can go wrong. Why should she be with Rob? She should be back with her other kids in case something does go wrong. That's the way I feel about it. Uh, what do you guys? I think? agree, and and maybe it's maybe it's the dads in us, Scott, that we just can't stand to see these little boys without their mom for too long. Uh, it seems like she could be there, but I don't know. What snoring? do you think, Brooke? I am snorting because if you replace Catelyn with Ned, if Ned was in Catelyn's position right now, you wouldn't be arguing that she should be safe at home, taking care of the little ones. Uh, well, that he should be safe at home taking care of the little ones. We're dealing we're dealing with a different situation than that. We're dealing with one parent instead of two. Um, yeah, what what I would say, what I would probably say is, well, they tend to take their kids to war with them. But Ned would be leading the host instead of Rob, and Rob could be back at home, still being yeah, a yeah okay, yeah. It's it's hard but, to create a parallel just, on that, but yeah. I I would say that. Kat is more than just a mother in this case. She's also almost like a diplomat or a dignitary. And she is. she's probably going to have more influence down the South, even if she does have some sort of secret internal motivation. I kind of think she wants to stay in the South so she has better access to Ned. Mm, that may point. be. Just, think, just in and case. You, you bring up a really good point, Brooke, that a lot of the fighting is happening 
in Catelyn's backyard. That's true. So not yep. her family's backyard. So not only is she, you know, wanting to be there just to be close to her family, um, her Tully family, and I think you make a good point about Ned, but also as we're going to find out, uh, she she gets these families and they know her and they respect her. Mm. People like the phrase and. Uh, and maybe there's some of that creeping into her thoughts as well. So good point. Yeah, that's true. But, no, I'm glad you brought it up because I honestly didn't even think that. I, I didn't think she should be at Winterfell. I was like, wow, she's so she's so brave for not running away to Winterfell because that's sort of a safe haven at this point. I think one ulterior motive for her too is being, being able to see her own family. You remember yeah. back when, when the, she was at the crossroads and she was sitting at the window and it was raining outside and there was there was like this two-paragraph thing where you were just in her thoughts – uh, way back before she nabbed Tyrion, like two pages before she nabbed Tyrion, and she's like, "Oh, I could go, I could go west, and it would just be a two-day ride to River Runner, or I don't know, a week ride to River, River Runner, something." And she really wants to go see her family, and she says, "No, I can't do it. I can't do it." Well, I'm not saying it's the reason she's doing this, but it's kind of one of those nice things in the back pocket. It's like, "Oh yeah, and by the way, I'll get to see my family too, and see what's going on down there." You know, but she also knows that it won't be just like a little jaunt over that this the situation is dire. And so there's that longing to see them, but also being very worried about them, because like we said, the fighting's right in River Run's backyard right now. I I, I agree. It's on on their doorstep. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with the tactical advantage she gets by riding with the group, uh, knowing knowing the backyard area, knowing the backyard area, knowing the area very well, like the back of her hand. uh, That's very helpful. I just she's a Stark now, she's not a Tully, and Winterfell needs her. That that's that's what I feel, and I don't mean to dismiss her value as a diplomat because it's clear that she has it. I just she I I, I just feel like it's it's a little bit it's a little bit condescending and two faced for her to ask that question of Rob and not mm-hmm. not seriously ask that question of herself. Yeah, right. well, that's a good point. Um, I do appreciate how sound of a I don't know if tactician is the right word, but. Um, how good she is at Scott, you mentioned this a little bit drawing drawing things out of people, especially Rob in this situation, letting him still make the decision, but leading him along that path until he makes it. Uh, she understands how leaders need to think right and and war leaders too, which is a quality that we hadn 't really seen in her yet. Um, she understands how they need to think, and so she helps try to get them there. I wonder if some of that came from just being in on councils with Eddard for all those years, you know, during the Greyjoy Rebellion and stuff. And if so, that shows a lot of the respect that Nad- Ned had for Catelyn. Yeah. Yeah, who knows, like, like how, how often she counseled him without undermining right. his confidence. Yeah. As yeah. she did with Rob. For sure, yeah. In, in I liked this... her. So this was a strong cat chapter. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it did. I mean, I said it a little bit earlier. It kind of reminded you of the value cat can have. These last several chapters have not been strong ones for Kat, but she's more in her element here, right? Yeah. Don't she ask does. her to stand up to her sister, but it's a hell of a job yeah. counseling her son. Yeah. Uh, do we want to talk about Moat Kalen a little bit? Yeah, totally. So Such a cool place. It is. I'm, I'm with the Blackfish. It doesn't seem that big a deal. And even when she says, oh, it's a death trap, and she's like, oh, there's snakes in there, and I'm like... You send several thousand men through, and how many are going to get killed by snake bites? Like, sounds like a lot of them. Yeah, it must be. I don't know. It, uh, but but more importantly, why if if it really is this seat of of power and and an impressive, you know, defensive position, why wouldn't they have rebuilt it in all these thousands of years? 
I don't think they. I don't think they, they could. I. It's too good point, Brooke. I don't know if they had to, but I also don't think they could. It was. It's there is one safe path apparently through this through the neck, yep. the this big bog of an area, and that that safe path that's big enough to march an army through is straight through Moat Kalen. It is completely surrounded on all other sides by this bog area. I don't think they could. I think logistically, it would be a nightmare to try to get in there and and there's, do that. There's that bit in Monty Python where he's like. The first castle we built I know what you're gonna say. sank and fell into the swamp. Second castle fell into the swamp as well. The third castle fell into the swamp. The fourth castle burned down, then fell into the swamp. But the fourth castle stayed up. But I don't want any of that. I'd rather. Rather what? I'd rather just sing. Stop that, stop that. You're not going to do a song while I'm here. <laughs> right? So they just need to get through the first three castles. And yeah, that's the key. Oh, I think. I think also. Just Pull yourself can, together, Ben. Can, can this entire podcast just be Scad reciting Monty Python because he's so good at it? Actually, Matt, you're good at it too. That English no, this is a, a little rough. Hasn't been. Worked. Um, I defer to, to Scad on his Monty Python knowledge. But... Anyways, I, I think that uh, it's difficult for us to to imagine a pre-road world. Yeah, like, uh, that's true. Like the, it was only well two thousand years ago, I guess, that the the Romans started building permanent weather-resistant roads. But it was very, very recently, within the last century or so, that we had like pavement and asphalt and and could easily access anywhere. So it's 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 difficult for us to imagine the um, the gravity of the swamp situation. That's not the only reason I think Mo Kalen is cool. I think it's also because it was built by the first men, which makes it over 10,000 years old. And Scad, you must have some sort of comparative landmark that is over 10,000 years old. <laughs> You've caught me unprepared. I have no idea. <laughs> well, well, like the old... with his pants down. <laughs> the oldest pyramid, I believe, and oh, I better fact check this, the Step Pyramid was like 4,000 BC, which is still only 6,000 years ago. So let's hack on another 4,000 years to that. That's one, how long the fortress has survived. It started out as 20 towers. There's three left. And also they had the capabilities to to build massive structures like that 10,000 years ago. It's, It's interesting to me that they haven't evolved more quickly like we have. Well, there's mm-hmm. been discussion about about the wall, and I I don't think I'm spoiling anything. We'll have to edit out if I am, but I think there's discussion about the wall being built with magic and things like that. I wonder if if maybe Mo Kalen had some help. Mm, and maybe that's part of its defenses. We just don't know all the details of it yeah. yet. Yeah, yeah we do know the children of the forest were um, they used it along with the first men. Uh, yeah, right. And the myth the myth is that the reason it's so boggy there now is because the children of the forest attempted to use magic to sever the north half of Westeros from the south to try to stem the Andal invasion. The Andals were in the south, and they are moving slowly northward. And to try to stop that, they they tried to use magic to split the, the continent in half. 
and it didn't completely work. <laughs> it only half worked. <laughs> so that's why it's all boggy and swampy now and stuff because it only half split. Mm. So uh, we, we probably ought to move on uh, to Tyrion, but uh, I wanted to, to note two things. First, finally enter my favorite house, House Manderley. Uh, I love this house. <laughs> A bunch of fat guys riding around. With um, walrus mustaches. Yeah, I love them. They're, they're my favorite house in the whole series. And also, uh, we had a reader point out uh, that Matt and I sound Canadian this week. And I just wanted to quickly point out that I caught Brooke saying the word asphalt. Well, that's a Canadianism. In the U.S., we say asphalt. What? Uh, <laughs> Why are you making it dirty? I, I don't know. <laughs> Why are you making it ashy? Because that's what it is. Yeah. Our um. Listen, our we more directly. Been, yeah. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Our podcast has been surprisingly clean so far tonight, so we need to. We gotta ass it up, up a little bit. bit. Yeah. <laughs> Throw some ass in there. Get a little Shake it around. Yeah. All right, Tyrion, Matt. Let's do Tyrion. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion Lannister or Imp, if you please. So, with the help of his new clansmen friends, of whom Tyrion doesn't know if he's a leader or a captive still, uh, Tyrion locates the Lannister army, now about 20,000 strong, and actually camped near the Crossroads Inn, where we remember Tyrion started this whole journey. And, of course, the famed uh, location where Bone Thugs and Harmony's The Crossroads was written. Bone thugs so you life. won't be lonely. Um, so taking a handful of representatives from some of the different mountain clans, partially against his wishes, uh, these reps include Ulf and Shaga, who we met, uh, Timmet of the Burn Men, Chella of the Black Ears. He goes to meet um, with, with his dad. He's going to go re-up with him. So he's taken to his father, who set up shop at the inn, uh, and this is our first real in-person look at Tywin Lannister. Until now, we've only heard hearsay about him and his coldness and, and the shrewd, uh, almost heartless leader that he is. And those uh, moments of hearsay that we've had are pretty much validated in our first look at him. He shows pretty much zero emotion upon re-encountering Tyrion. There's none of that. My The prodigal son has returned. My son is safe. Uh, he basically, all he says is a quote like, the rumors of your demise appear to have been unfounded. And even when Tyrion thanks him for basically starting a war to get him back, Tywin explains that he had to start the war to defend House Lannister's honor. Um, not necessarily to save his his boy. Um, so we get to this summary of where we are that Scad so uh, poignantly pointed out in the last chapter, uh, with Tywin revealing, among other things, that Jamie has been covering himself in glory. He took over the Golden Tooth, uh, which is an important passage between Casterly Rock and River Run. It's seen as kind of a very strategic and key point to overtake if you're going to move on to River Run. And there's now only a couple of houses in the Riverlands that still stand to oppose them, one of them being the phrase, 
so Tyrion learns of also during this time of Eddard's imprisonment. He learns that uh, King Robert had died and Joffrey is now the king. Um, and he's also offered a command. Tywin offers to allow uh, Tyrion to go out and find and hunt down the groups that have been harassing their supply trains. Fun job. One of them, uh, one of the groups includes Beric Dondarrion's little band of men that, if you'll remember clear back when, were sent out by Eddard during his one day in court to uh, to hunt down Gregor Clegane. So we know that Beric is rumored to still be out there um, harassing the Lannisters. Shaga and the other clansmen who had not entered into the tent with Tywin previously come uh, in and with a bang, they throw the guardsmen in before them and then just come sauntering in, insisting that they should have the right to sit in on war councils uh, because they believe that every man should have the, the voice of every man should be heard when making a decision, especially in war councils. You think that a guy like Tywin Lannister would be a bit put off by this, but instead he he's actually quite cordial with them, if not still cold, and um, allows them to stay and. Uh, introductions are made. And about this same time, Tywin receives word that Rob Stark's army is approaching from the north along the King's Road. Uh, we see that exactly what Rob had planned to do, he, he seems to be doing. At least the half that, as Brooke said, is on the east side traveling down the King's, uh, King's Road. They're coming. So Tywin orders that his armies assemble, and then he makes a promise. He promises the clansmen that if they fight for him, he will give them everything Tyrion promised and more. Uh, they shoot back that he's he's offering them what is already owed, and and that means nothing to them. Tywin backpedals just a bit, recovers quickly, and begins appealing to their sense of pride by saying that even his boldest knights are afraid to take on these Northerners, and he needs someone who you know he can trust out there in the field. So these clansmen, particularly Timmet. Timmet of the burned men, uh, claiming that they fear nothing, they agree to fight for Tywin on one condition, that Tyrion accompanies them into battle. End of chapter. Whew. Um, Good condition. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we want the half man in there with us. Um, gosh, what did you guys think of our first look at old Ty Lannister? Dad of the year? Good guy? <laughs> It's a real piece of work. It's it's funny. I, I I as I was reading this, I tried to think of another. Uh, I didn't think too long, but I tried to think of another case where we've seen in the distance some character impact the events more than Tywin does here, without actually ever being introduced. Tywin has got his stamp all over this book in things that he's done, decisions he's made, histories that have been told. And we've never met him until, you know, what are we, three-fourths of the way through this book. It's uh, it's interesting. It's not very common to see that. Good point. And maybe that's um, that goes to his credit as, as he was rumored to be an excellent hand of the king back in his day. And, uh, you know, he got stuff done, even if he wasn't getting all the credit for it. The guy got stuff done. Um, I respect... Uh, him as a professional, he he just got things done. He did it in a lot more cold of a manner than I ever would. I'm way too much of a softy to do things like Tywin Lannister did uh, and does. But man, this guy is is definitely not getting Father of the Year 
in uh, in the Westeros area region this this year or this century. Um, everything we, we, I strive not to be as a dad. <laughs> we've only heard Tyrion's side of of how he's perceived by his father, but as you mentioned, it it all comes to light that absolutely Tywin has zero respect. In fact, outright distaste for Tyrion, and uh, Tyrion handles it really well. Like mm-hmm. for for as much as he. Uh, and we've discussed this before, subconsciously wants Tywin's approval. He's a real smart ass. Like, <laughs> like he doesn't, he doesn't let Tywin's um, disrespectful treatment of him affect his, his right to give his opinion, um, his right to demand things as the son uh, or a Lannister prince, I suppose. And uh, it's, it's impressive. That's true. A thought just came to me. Do you think Tywin maybe feels a tad bit threatened by Tyrion because of his intellect? Huh. Is that why he treats him? Is that partially why he treats him the way I, he does? I think he I think he treats him the way he does in large part because of his stature and he's not Jamie and he he doesn't meet up to the physical expectations that Tywin has for for a son and a Lannister, but I wonder if he feels a tad if he keeps him at arm's distance because he feels a tad bit threatened because he knows how smart Tyrion actually is. I, I don't read it as threatened. I read it as frustration. If Tyrion weren't so smart, he could just completely dismiss him the way he wants to. Very good. But Tyrion's mm-hmm. intelligence is just this grudging bone he has to throw to him all the time because mm-hmm. he does have value. And Tywin doesn't want to admit that Tyrion has any value, but he, well said. But he has to. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of Tywin going along with, I guess, Tyrion's bringing the clans into the Lannister armies? <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting. You, you could you could read it as, well, uh, I'll say this. I, I think I think Tywin is a master of reading situations and responding appropriately. He's actually at a disadvantage when they bust in on them like that. The clansmen mm-hmm. likely could kill everyone in the room, right? And yeah, they'd be killed by Lannister men outside the tent, but likely they could kill everyone in the room. And mm. I think Tywin sees that, but instead of reacting, you see the, there's a tiny mention that Kevin, Uncle Kevin Lannister, we haven't talked about yet, reaches for his sword, and Tywin's just like, no, 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 wait. You know, I think he mm. sees that there's actually a threat here if they handle this the wrong way. But he he sees the opportunity and handles it the right way, and I yeah. I think he just turns like he does with so many situations. He just turns it towards his benefit, and that's why I can't I, I begrudgingly like you said he does for Tyrion. I have to give Tywin that all the time that the guy just knows how to get stuff done. He knows how to work with people, and, and by work we could say manipulate. Um, he knows just how to turn a situation into his his favor, a bad situation. Uh, yeah, uh, he's I can't also... think of any. Oh, we got some time delay. Go ahead, you go ahead. Finish your thought. <laughs> no, I was just going to go back to Brooks' original uh, question of of what he wanted to do with with these guys. I can't see strategic reason to use them. There's only about three hundred of them we read, but more are supposed to be coming um, uh, compared to the host of twenty thousand. Uh, of Lannister forces. The only reason I can see these guys being of any value to Tywin is his, is his arrow fodder, pretty much. Well, Put what do them you lose? In front. What, what do you risk? 
<laughs> you get 300 exactly. men who exactly. are crazy. If any of them die, you yep. have to give them less armor. <laughs> yep. What do you what put do you them risk? in the fr- that's what I'm saying. Yeah, put yeah. them in the front, let them take the arrows and then bring in your guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the only reason I can see him doing that. It's it really worked to his advantage. Go, Go ahead. ahead. Well, it's actually just frustrating that the the clansmen agree to this. They make the point of saying you would right. pay us with our own coin and then two sentences later turn around and like, "Yes, we'll fight for you for free." It's kind of insulting. Well, they actually pulled a smart move in making the condition that Tyrion come with them because they've already seen. I, I don't think that they're they're so dense that they wouldn't have picked up that Tywin is there because of Tyrion. So Tyrion is a valuable piece to have to to use in future negotiations or to get their to get their invisible twice promised gold. But so that also works out to Tywin's advantage hugely because it puts Tyrion in the way of an arrow, and that mm-hmm. takes care of that little problem. Yeah, but, but, if, <laughs> but if Tyrion gets hit by an arrow, don't the clansmen lose? Doesn't doesn't Tywin just kick them out and be like, ah, see you later? Maybe we'll um, them. I don't know. Yeah, but... I guess now I guess now it depends on how the clansmen use Tyrion. Yeah, right. Well. Yeah, I wonder if they plan on you know they. Yeah, your your point's well taken, Brooke, that Tywin probably wouldn't shed too many tears if Tyrion were to die. But I wonder if they think, you know, like you said, they started a a war over this little half-man. Um, they're not going to let him die in battle. And well, dying in battle is an protected. honorable death. So, yeah, I think they would. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I'm with Brooke. But would they – I don't know if they – fully trust that they'll get what they want if Tyrion's not there. I agree with that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, no one's thought that I'm talking about Tywin and Tyrion and the clans in here. No one's fully thought this through, and they're all thinking on their feet in this little They kind of are just reacting, yeah. We have the benefit of reading (laughs) these chapters twice and discussing. (laughs) These guys are like, oh, uh, an army is coming down the King's Road. It's going to be here soon. Uh, Okay, here's what we're going to do. And I'll just say, of the three of them, Tyrion didn't really have much of a choice to react other than to agree to go to battle. The clansmen had the choice to refuse or accept, and Tywin had no choice but turn the situation completely on its ear and gain 300 new mega warriors. So I think Ty, I think I think Tywin wins. Is my he's, he's Tywinning. Yeah, that's right. And that's my word that I made up. He's Tywinning. Tywin yeah, that's right. Tywinning. And Matt, yeah, you made the that definition. point. You made that point in the notes um, very cleverly that all these villages are, are burning and everything. They went to war because of Tyrion. And you just said it a, a few minutes ago, too. I'm not sure that that's true. I think you pointed out also that it's this was a powder keg, right? It's like uh, what was it, World World War Two, where everyone had just been kind of amassing all of this technology, and uh, and it was just kind of a powder keg waiting to happen. Or was that World War One? That was World War One. Sorry, same thing. Like there's just too much going on. This thing is going to explode at some point, and Tyrion was just an excuse. Tyrion was right. Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. No, but um, adding on to our word of the podcast, last week it was backdoorsier, I believe it was. Yeah. Someone who is backdoorsy. <laughs> this week is tie winning, which the definition is viciously winning. So I still, so when you say backdoorsier, I think of butt support. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like a bra Little for your cups. ass. Yeah. Like a, like a bra for your butt. Yeah. yeah I like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
we probably should move on uh, unless uh, you guys have anything else to, to slam on. No, I'm really pumped about this Sansa chapter, though, so... Let's... I just want to mention one thing. At one yeah. point, Tyrion was about to tell Tywin how oh, yeah. to use the clansmen to take the veil, and then he gets cut off, and we don't find out. And that totally bugs me, because we discussed this before. How would you take the veil? Tyrion might have that answer. Yeah. We know it wasn't going to be pretty. He he says something about how he wants to reduce it to, you know, just this barren wasteland or something like that. But... Yeah, was he going to blow it up? I want to hear the plan. Yeah. What kind of technology does Tyrion have at his disposal? Yeah, it's interesting. You wonder if uh, if George threw that out there just as a little, uh, I don't know, like a middle finger to everyone. Like, I'm, I had no intention ever of telling tell you. you. <laughs> I, I had no intention ever of revealing this. I just want you to think that I have an idea. Yeah, he didn't really have a plan. He just wanted us to That's think he did. All right, moving on to Sansa. Don't know when a prince will come, but surely he's going to come for Sansa Stark. Here be looking like a tolly and a daddy killed a wolf is Sansa Stark. So, uh, when, uh, when we find Sansa here, she's a prisoner in the Red Keep, but a prisoner with the freedom to go wherever she wishes, um, as long as she doesn't try to escape, basically. Uh, she's now gathered in the throne room with 20 or so knights. Uh, none of them will give her the time of day. They're all kind of pretending they don't know her, looking the other direction. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark uh, or King's Landing. Uh, why are they all here? Well, they're here to hear, they're, they're there to hear, the royal decrees from new King Joffrey. Basically, the decree is, all those of questionable loyalty must present themselves in King's Landing to swear fealty. That includes all the Baratheons, all the Starks, all the Aarons, all the Tullys, Others whom we haven't really met yet, including the Martells and, and the Dornish and um, all sorts of other, of other people. He also decreed that Ned uh, will be replaced as, as King's Hand with Tywin, uh, who's off fighting a war right now. Uh, that Cersei will replace Stannis on the small council. Uh, Jonna Slint has been rewarded for his <laughs> honorable actions... Uh, during the uh, capture of Ned and the slaying of, of the Northmen. He's been granted a lordship, uh, Harrenhal, which uh, is a castle we haven't really seen yet, but uh, it's a an old, very difficult uh, to take castle um, that uh, rumors are that it's cursed and such. So it's it's kind of a, it's been granted to him uh, and its current owner will be removed, <laughs> ostensibly. Uh, and he's also granted a position on the small council himself. Next, we move to a bit of surprising news. Sir Barristan is being dismissed. And it's a heartbreaking dismissal. He doesn't understand that that's what they're trying to do. And he kind of stammers through his, his pleas not to be let go. Um, but he's being replaced by Jamie as the lord, uh, the, the head uh, of the King's Guard. Um, and his spot, uh, because they need another one to replace him, uh, is going to be taken by the Hound. Uh, Sir Barristan storms out half-naked, throwing down his sword and, and all of his armor. They note that the Hound is not a knight. And one of the one of the members of the Kingsguard says, but we're always, we have to be knights in the Kingsguard. And the Hound just says, not anymore, and takes his position as a member of the Kingsguard. Uh, then they basically make way for new business. Um, and at this point, Sansa, who's been waiting her turn, and waiting and listening to all these names being announced and 
all these decisions being made, has been waiting for her moment to come make a plea to Joffrey, the new king, and her betrothed. Despite the chirpings of the council, she directly uh, appeals at Joffrey for her father's life, for mercy, and says as he loves her, uh, or sorry, he says that as he loves her, he's moved by her words, and that as long as Ned repents and says Joff is the rightful king, he will be given mercy. And, and Sansa is just over the moon uh, excited and happy that she's been able to have this effect, um, and that is how the chapter ends. Cool. So, some interesting stuff. Um, basically, a, most of the chapter is a lot of changes coming uh, to the government, and um, <laughs> the biggest one is the Lannisters are basically saying, all right, no more joking We're around. In. We're taking over. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is our kingdom yeah. now, right? They're, you know, Cersei's on the council. Jon Slint, who probably is pretty much their puppet, is on the council. Uh, Tywin has become Hand of the King. Um, they're, they make no bones. They have no shame in self-promotion and uh, basically seizing as much control as, as possible in the government. They even, as Brooke noted in her notes, uh, they even announce Joffrey as from the houses Baratheon and Lannister, which is... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that doesn't happen for many other kings. It's I mean, you're, you're a Bar- Baratheon, you're a Baratheon, you're a Targaryen, you're a Targaryen, but... Uh... You know, and what's crazy about this is, as Scott said, they're just blatantly moving in. They're not even trying to be shrewd or, or coy about this. You know, I've, I tried to think of a better example to use, but I really can't, so pardon my bringing my Mormonism into this, but when I was a a missionary in Brazil, we had a mission president who was basically kind of the leader over a group of missionaries in a region, and um, he he left and we got a new president, and when this new president came in, he kind of, he didn't really do anything, he kind of left business as usual, and then he'd change like a little, a little process, or process for Brooke. Uh, in, in things that we did. And then he'd leave that for a little bit. Then he'd introduce another new little way of doing things. And then another one. And before long, we were doing things completely different, but it had happened so gradually that we really didn't notice. And that was smart of him because he knew if we just, if he just came in and changed everything that we were already comfortable with, we would have like revolted, you know, and, and, and would have dismissed him before he'd even gotten started. These Lannisters are like, screw that. Like we're taking over. And, Scott named off a bunch of the positions that they're doubling up on. Like normally spots that go to two people are going to one. Like Tywin is warden of the West and the hand of the King. And uh, Jamie's the leader of the Kingsguard and the warden of the East. Cersei's the queen regent and on the small council, you know, like just just handing out stuff right and left. It's crazy. It's crazy. And they're surrounding themselves with people that, they know are going to be loyal to them. You know, there's, they're not naming John O'Slint to the small council because he's capable of doing the job. They just know that he'll vote for them when anything in the small council comes to a vote. They've got his vote. You know, they can't trust, they can't always trust Pycelle, Varys, and Littlefinger, the other members of the council, but too bad because now they've got four people, Tywin, Cersei, Jamie, and John O'Slint on their side. So it's going to be four to three in any vote. they yeah, they essentially can do whatever they want now. Matt, your your story about uh, your mission could have brought another example to me. Change management. I don't know if ever 
probably everyone doesn't know what that is, but change management is a whole industry now uh, when businesses are trying to change course and do things differently and how you manage the change because people don't deal with change very well. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's millions of million dollars of industry, right, of people that are experts in change management and do, doing it the right way. Um, one, one example, if, you've, if anyone's seen the movie Office Space, those guys are kind of doing change management, right? They're like consultants to come to help help change management. Oh, sorry, did I say the uh, the office office space? Um, I said office space. Yeah. But office their names space. their names are both Bob. Bob, that's right, that's, the Bobs. That's... I got a meeting with the Bobs in a minute. I I can't <laughs> do this anymore. Uh, what what would you say you do here? Anyway, so it reminded me of that because they're not following any sort of change management policy here, and it's evident. The lords yeah. and ladies are chattering, they're muttering, they're kind of talking amongst themselves when these things are getting announced. Nobody likes it. There's a lot of unease as Jonas Slint gets made, you know, this this high lord who, you know, did one thing and became a high lord when these houses have been around for hundreds of years. Um, there's a lot of unrest about what the, what, what the Lannisters are doing here. Yeah, and that just goes to show how powerful the Lannisters are because all these other lords can do is mutter. They they don't dare speak up. Oh yeah, they're not going to challenge it because they know, and there's nothing that they can do about it. And the Lannisters know that they know that, and that's why they're not afraid. Yeah, it's well in crazy. this in this very room, they saw exactly what happened to a man more powerful than they ever were that tried mm -hmm. to call the Lannisters out. His yeah. men were were murdered, and he was taken captive. They 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 don't they don't they know they can't do anything about it. So uh, Matt, you brought up something interesting about. Uh, doubling up on the on the duties um and uh hey i haven't said duties on this podcast in a long time i know time. i took it upon I myself do a duties it, it, needed to be, it just <laughs> needed to be done it needed to be done um so it's it's noted that all the king's guard are there in the throne room except jamie right. and he's off fighting a war for the lannisters instead of guarding the king um mm -hmm. interesting that you know jamie is excused for letting uh, Robert die when Sir Barristan is, uh, you know, let go. Jamie wasn't even around at all, right? At least Barristan was there. But uh, why isn't he there? <laughs> right. Yeah. Why does he get this treatment? I don't know if it's because well, he's the queen's brother or something. But because you don't see any of the other Kingsguard going off and cavorting and helping their families do things. Uh, it seems to be, at least in the sample size that we get, that it's just Jamie that's allowed to go and do what he wants. But to be fair, he had already been chased off by Ned, right? After uh, Jamie's men attacked Ned's men. So Which is all... suspect, too, that yeah. he was leading men to attack Ned in the first place. Yeah, yeah for sure. Sorry. Yeah, he was kind of, I don't know, you said run off. Yeah, I mean, he kind of fled. He's like, ah, oh, all right, I'll leave. I don't think he fled with a tail between his legs, but he's like... It'll be messy Hello if for I a stay. While. I'm just going to get out of here for a while. But... So so I don't think it's it's intentional him just flying off doing his own thing. I think I think he probably got caught up in the, the Lannister March North. And, well, Tywin is hand of the king now, so he he can command uh, Jamie, right? Yeah, yeah, he well, can. He it's can just that now. whole process of how he gets there is like, well... I'll just go off and do my own thing. I belong at yeah. the side of the king and doing what he says, but I'll just run off. It's just I mean, weird. One could say, it's just weird. Yeah, one one could say that he's acting in his position as warden of the east. Yeah, you can um, say that. However, 
But, but if he is acting in that, he's not doing a very good job because the Warden of the East's job is to marshal the armies of the East yeah. to, you know, in times of battle. And he's got no army. You know, the, the Aaron's and the people in the Vale or the East, they're holed up behind in the Vale of Aaron. They're not coming out and fighting. In, so if he claims he's doing that, he's not doing a very good job. You but could I agree argue with you that Tyrion should be made Warden of the East. Because he, he got more men than Jake. The, the clans of the mountains. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. And, and he's he got doing a better job than, than Jamie is. Well, you're out covering yourself in glory, Jamie, quote unquote. I'm out doing your job, you loser. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I'm, I, I don't mean to like cut this down, but I feel like it's almost in vain arguing what the true role of the Kingsguard is because we've seen like through Ned's memories of uh, the Kingsguard for uh, King Ares, they're always all over the place, willy nilly doing whatever they want. So I don't think it's ever been clearly established that they have to be right beside the King all all the time. Certainly in Robert's rebellion there at the end, we had some weird stuff going on. I, I agree. I agree that it's probably, we shouldn't probably spend more time on it. I just get frustrated. I'm I'm a rule guy. I'm a rules guy. I want rules to make yeah, sense, and I want people to follow them. And when I get writing that doesn't seem to follow its own rules that have been set up, I get frustrated. And I feel like George, fr- just, he just frustrates the hell out of me on this. Because while you while you're right, sometimes they have been out and about doing their own thing. It doesn't seem like they're doing their own thing to me. It seems like they've been following orders. Jamie is clearly out doing his own thing to me. Yeah, but but, but yeah. I don't blame that. I I don't blame that on George's writing. I think that might be intentional to show that Jamie, you know, the power of the Lannisters, and that Jamie, despite his position, can go do whatever he wants. He does get away with a lot. Didn't he kill a king once? Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. You're saying it's intentional. I'm saying I'm frustrated by the lack of, of rule following. That's fine. How about uh, speaking of Kingsguard, Barristan, you know, giving giving everyone the finger on his way out. That was a lot of fun and yes. heartbreaking at the same time. Man, yeah. so heartbreaking. Like like you described it well when he didn't understand what was happening at first. And he was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like like an old person that's kind of being uh, being being put, you know put down right that they're they can't make it anymore <laughs> well it's it's the wrong turn to your grandparents <laughs> no actually i have a real story to go into i won't because we don't have time but yeah that 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 actually did happen to one of my grandparents and they they just oh. they weren't going to make it anymore but they were they were aware and we had to tell them that and it was just it was painful to see their reaction but yeah. it's the same thing you know that he doesn't understand and Although, as much as I as much as I don't like the dismissal of Barristan because I think he's fucking awesome, uh, it it reminded me of the U.S. the U.S. government system that doesn't have term limits. Senators, for example, can serve as many terms as they want, and the stupid electorate just keeps electing them because they don't know any better, and they see the name every year on the ballot. They're like, "Well, you must be doing a good job," and they just keep electing them, and we, we get like eighty year old senators in there that don't have any fresh ideas, that don't know what they're doing at all. Um, you know, with, with, with anything new, they're well beyond their time and they just keep serving. And, you know, maybe there should be kind of a, a limit on King's guard and how long they serve. Just a political thought. I agree with that, but he seems yeah. like he's still doing a pretty good job, right? That seemed like a real preemptive move on the behalf of the Lannisters to get rid of him. Because I, we've, it, yep. I, yeah. I'm, I'm speaking more generally, not about Barristan himself. Oh, okay. Yeah, fair enough. But he, he would have been a stick in the mud when it comes to, Honorability yes. and yes, and he Absolutely. like like I pointed 
like I mentioned before with the, um, uh, you know, the four votes to three votes on the small council, mm. they, they, they needed him out of there to get that fourth guy on the small council who yes. could always swing things their way. Right. Yep. And plus, you know, replacing him with the hound, um, you know, the hound's going to do whatever the Lannisters want. They ask him to go kill a little butcher's boy. He's going to go out and kill the little butcher's boy. For Barristan, as honorable and as loyal as he is, I don't know if he would have gone out and killed a little butcher's boy. Yeah. But the Hound, they know that he will do any dirty work they want to. They also know he's been protecting Joffrey a long time and that uh, he's willing to turn a blind eye to you know anything that Joffrey might do or the rest of the Lannisters for that matter. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't make too much of a point of it in my summary, but dismissing Kingsguard is not done. It's not no. done. They, it's, I, as far as I know, it's never been done. You don't just get rid of them. They they serve for life, and so it's a big deal that the Lannisters have done this. I didn't I kind of glossed over that in my summary. It's also a big deal that they promoted the Hound, who's not a knight. That also isn't done. So they're mm-hmm. they're really changing about some general policy, um, and naming the new commander that who is who killed a king once. Yeah. <laughs> now they're putting him in charge. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's move on uh, for the sake of time. Matt, take it all take it away on Eddard. Winter is coming Like a dire wolf prowling in the dark He'll take off your head But his friends call him Ned Warden of the North, yeah, he's Eddard Stark So we finally return to Eddard, who is confined to some of the deepest, darkest, filthiest dungeons in the Red Keep called the Black Cells. These are even below the normal dungeons and are reserved for only the worst of the worst. In fact, the dungeons in the Red Keep have some above-ground cells that are specifically reserved for, like, highborn captives and are a little bit more comfortable in their living conditions. But no, not for Ned. He's thrown down in the darkest of the dark, the worst of the worst in terms of uh, captivity and incarceration. It's pitch black in there, no windows, um, and all he's got is some straw that smells of pee and feces. Uh, and don't forget, Ned it has still a very serious leg injury that, as far as we know, is not being attended to at all. So that is also a big issue. Uh, with all this time, um, not even knowing the passage of days or anything, Ned considers what's happening in Westeros. You know, imagining that Stannis and Renly are out gathering armies. Uh, interesting that he imagines Catelyn marshalling the north, um, as well as forces from the Riverlands and the Vale. He also thinks about King Robert. He's feeling immense guilt at his death uh, for not and for not telling Robert about um, his children's uh, true heritage sooner. We also get a vision of an event that happened a while ago called the Tourney at Harrenhal. I want to take just a couple seconds to explain what it is because it's significant. The Tourney at Harrenhal was a tournament some years past uh, that was one of the biggest of its time. And at this tournament were present many of the um, characters that we see in the book, Eddard, his family, uh, his sister Lyanna. Also, Barristan Selmy was there. Jamie Lannister was knighted a, um, and made a member of the King's Guard at age 15. He was named a member of that King's Guard. Uh, also present was Rhaegar Targaryen, who actually killed it at the tournament, and he won the joust, which is the premier uh, event at a tourney. 
it's customary for the victor of the joust to crown a queen of love and beauty. This is kind of just a nod to the ladies out there where the um, winner gets to kind of crown a queen to be with him. At this time, Rhaegar was married to Aaliyah Martell, but instead of crowning her the queen of love and beauty, he crowned Lyanna Stark to everyone's surprise. Uh, despite the fact, again, that he was married and also that Lyanna was already betrothed to Robert Baratheon. So he gave her a, a crown of blue roses, which were her favorite flower, and she was named the Queen of Love and Beauty at this tournament. Uh, Eddard names this time as the time that all the smiles died. A beautiful, beautiful line. And um, uh, he sees it as one of the precursory events to Robert's Rebellion. So he's going through kind of all these memories and visions, and after an, an incalculable amount of time, a jailer uh, brings him wine, uh, and the jailer turns out to be Varys in disguise. So Varys comes and visits him, and they have a little sit-down together. He informs Ned that Arya escaped, Stansa's still alive, but is basically a hostage of the, of the Lannisters. He's um, Ned is still feeling a little belligerent to Varys and questions his loyalty. Varys replies that his only quest is for peace. Um, he, he wants there to be stability in the kingdom and he wants there to be peace, among all other things. He claims to have helped kept Robert alive all these years from the Lannisters and other enemies. Um, he also reveals to Ned that Cersei did indeed give Robert's um, squire, Lancel Lannister, the wineskin that Robert got so drunk from. Uh, he said, however, that the clock was already ticking for Robert and he was going to be removed by the Lannisters at, at some point anyways. Uh, Varys then chides Ned a bit for giving Cersei the chance to escape and, and for not supporting Joffrey after Joffrey takes over. Um, he informs Ned that Cersei's going to visit him and uh, she still has some fears regarding Rob, uh, the Baratheons, the Martells down in Dorne, and other families and groups. So he encourages Ned to, to play on that, admit his treason, and if he does, Varys is almost positive that Ned will be allowed to take the black and join his um, bastard son, John at the Wall. Claiming that his honor is more important than his life, uh, Ned, you know, is is a little bit um, stubborn, still on the point. At which time, Varys reminds Ned that Sansa is still in the thick of the thing, uh, in the thick of things. She um, is still very much uh, safe, but a hostage to the Lannisters. And in what I couldn't quite tell, might be considered either a threat or kind of a foreboding prediction of the future. Varys tells Ned that the next time he visits, he could come bearing either food and milk of the poppy or Sansa's head. And then Varys reminds Ned that the choice is up to him. And, uh, and then he leaves. And that's... And Ned goes back to the darkness. End of chapter. Oh. Yeah. Dense. Yeah. Man. Um, a lot going on. <laughs> to say the least. Um... Where you, you know, start? <laughs> what is Varys trying to do here? Do you guys buy that he wants peace? Is he on Eddard's side? Uh, what is the point of this visit and Varys trying to 
is seemingly being on Eddard's side. He well, reveals a lot of stuff to him that hasn't been revealed before. I just can't figure this guy out. Well, he I, reveals a lot of stuff to Ned, but he also keeps a lot of stuff back. Like mm. he doesn't he doesn't tell Ned that his position has been taken by Tywin. He doesn't tell Ned that Barristan has been replaced or any of the other new appointments that uh, Joffrey and Cersei have made. So okay. it's almost like he's <sighs> describing a world in which Ned could actually rejoin, where he could actually take the black, where he wouldn't be assassinated the second that he uh, swore fealty or, you know, accidentally mm -hmm. killed. That tells me that Varys probably wants something from Ned. But what right. does he want? And and, and yeah. it's not for Ned to to serve the Lannisters, to take the black or anything like that. He Ned either has some sort of information or has some sort of influence that Varys wants to leverage. Yeah, I, I agree with that generally. I mean, you unless he's trying to do reverse psychology and get Ned to do the exact opposite of what he's suggesting, in which case <laughs> you can question everyone's motive if you're just going to assume that. But in, unless that's the case, you've got to assume that either Ned or Sansa, or someone on the Stark family Varys wants spared. That, that he has something to gain by them being around rather than coming to an end. And what that is, I don't know. I, 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 I hesitate to really guess what that might be. But, but I'm, I'm kind of with Brooke. I would say that what Varys keeps saying is, I want peace. I want peace for the mm -hmm. realm. Well, if you asked enough questions, eventually that's what everyone would say. They just want peace after they're in charge. So right. Varys <laughs> yeah. wants peace at the expense of what? At who in charge? What conditions? You know, he's he's very sly in the way he answers that, making him sound, you know, like the good guy. But, but you know, what means to get there? And ev everyone wants peace once their guy's in charge. Ned has these visions. I'm changing the subject here, sorry. Uh, dreams of blood and broken promises. Uh, this seems to be the first we hear, perhaps, of promises that Ned broke. Any idea what those promises might be? Again, speculation. I, I, I wonder if, I don't know if they're a different set of promises. We, we, we've heard a bunch of times uh, Liana's request, promise me Ned, right? And we don't know what that promise right. is. We, we have no idea. You know, it's it's not spelled out. It, it seems the language is similar enough that you would think they're the same promises that he's mentioning here. We don't know that for sure either. But it's the first time I think we've been led to assume that those things Liana has asked him to promise are officially broken. Mm -hmm. he, he thinks of them so much, you might have assumed that, that, you know, these promises, he's got some guilt about them because he hasn't fulfilled them or something. But this is the first time where he's saying, oh, they're broken. Does, my question right. back to you guys is: Does does that mean that by in the, something about him getting arrested has now made those promises broken, whereas before he still had the potential to fill them? Um, I I wonder if this is our first glimpse into Ned actually giving up on himself, mm. uh, that and giving up on his situation and resigning himself to the fact that he's going to die. So even though he's still alive, he doesn't think he's ever going to get out, and therefore he's never going to be able to come clean on on any of these promises. Um, we Ned's in a really dark place right he now, is. literally yeah. and and figuratively. He's yeah. he's having a lot of trouble, uh, and you can't blame him. He's sitting there in the dark. He's got this leg that's just festering and probably disgusting. Um, 
and he has no idea, you know, the mental anguish he must be going through thinking about his family He's and also, everything. It must just also, be horrible. Yeah, agreed. Sorry to cut you off there. Um, okay. He's also still thinking a lot about Robert's death. And I wonder if the promises have anything to do with that. With Robert. Yeah, that's yeah. that's one thing I was thinking of because Robert uttered a similar thing to Ned on his deathbed. He said, promise me, Ned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, protecting the children and and, yep. uh, and all of that. That's so I wonder true. if maybe yeah. he's thinking about that and the fact that he's not going to be able to help protect Robert's kids. Yeah, you're right. Those are different the other, promises. Yeah, that's true. But he did – he also uh, – is. he seems to be thinking about John in this chapter too. And a question of is why is he feeling so ashamed of John? Is it because of the fact that he sired a bastard? Or is it maybe because of everything he's, he might have – put John through by bringing him back to Winterfell and claiming him to be a bastard. I was thinking about, you know, other ways that Ned could have, other directions Ned could have taken. He could have saved um, John a lot of heartache probably if he would have just said that, you know, he was fighting and they went through a sacked town or something and he found this baby that was still alive. And so he decided to keep the baby. Catelyn probably would have been totally cool with John. His whole life, if he would have, you know, said something like that, but you know, he put uh, John through the ringer as well as himself by telling the truth uh, and saying he was a bastard son. And I wonder if that's why he's feeling some shame that he was never able to come clean with John and, you know, give him some of that closure. Maybe it's it's a lot of conjecture. We don't really know what the promises are. I like the idea that it's it's something that's changed with Robert's death. You know that that is if if, if it was some promise about. Um, you know, protecting Robert or helping Robert do something, uh, you know, again, conjecture, but that's a promise he can no longer keep because Robert's dead. <laughs> right. But uh, anyway, uh, interesting to, to, to guess. Well, I wanted to touch, we've got to move on in a minute, but I wanted to touch real quickly on the, uh, Varys implies that Ned had something to do with Robert's death, saying it was your mercy that killed him. Um, I don't really get how that is because they left on the hunting party and everyone in that party left before Ned even met with Cersei. So I don't understand how Ned's giving Cersei mercy of of time to flee could have could have impacted the decision to try to take Robert out in the um, woods. How I see that is that the timeline of events was Robert's off hunting. Uh, Ned uses the opportunity to get Cersei alone in the woods. He tells her get out because when Robert returns, I am going to tell him uh, the true parentage of his children, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's when she would have arranged for the wine to be given to Robert for something to happen while he was, while he was uh, hunting. I see. You're, you're saying, you're saying at that point she sent somebody out into the woods to find the party and give the message. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I think I think that there's I, I, I believe that there's a, a direct connection. I believe that that Ned was the catalyst, so interesting. I know in my in my other readings I never thought that. Alright, uh we should probably move on, uh due to time. Um so uh Brooke, uh, you wanna take us through Catelyn? Words will cut you like Valyrian steel through a hand. She can't love Jon Snow And she's sure to let you know Where she stands A devoted mother Who married the brother Of a dead fiancé 
She's vengeful and hateful, loving and faithful. She's Catelyn, Catelyn Stark. So Rob, Catelyn, and the riders bound to defend River Run have arrived at the Twins, two holdfasts of the Lord of the Crossing, Walter Frey, who we talked about earlier in the podcast. A little history on this guy. Back in the day, during Robert's Rebellion, Robert had defeated Rhaegar at the Battle of the Trident and won the crown, and then the Frey army sauntered in, conveniently late, there to support the winner. So, Catelyn knows this history and is very wary of trusting and asking the Freys for, um, to, to cross uh, at the Twins. Uh, in fact, Walder Frey has the nickname the Late Lord Frey, um, which uh, uh, Holster Tully, uh, her father, uses quite a bit. So the Tullys have called the banners, but Brynden has scouted out a Frey force of 4,000 just waiting at the Twins, not moving to help defend Riverrun. So Catelyn knows that the negotiation is going to use the bridge uh, between the twins uh, to cross the Green Fork River is probably going to be challenging. And negotiate they have to. The river is too fast and dangerous to cross with armored men. They don't have time to build rafts, and they can't afford to take the twins by force since it would be a long siege. And River Run has been surrounded by Jamie Lannister and his army, so they needs to cross this river like yesterday to ride down <laughs> and kick ass. To avoid any assassination or hostage-taking hostage shenanigans, Catelyn volunteers to treat with Walder Frey instead of sending Rob. So from here on, we get, um, I would say, I would call it a delightful and intense introduction to Walder Frey. He's 90 years, 90 years old. He's on his eighth wife, who is 16, which is a little old in Westeros, but she's pretty, <laughs> so it's okay. And he has over a hundred descendants. That's if you count the bastards, too. But just from children he's fathered and their children and their children and their children. Um, I, I won't go too much into it because we kind of get mired in, like, talking to uh, Walder's sons and who's in charge and who has favor with Walder right now, et cetera, et cetera. But enjoy the phrase readers. Uh, they are the epitome of family. And I, I get the impression that George really enjoys writing them. <laughs> uh, so Catelyn uh, is successful in her negotiations. They do get to cross the bridge at the twins so that they can ride down and uh, help defend River Run or actually take it back from Jamie Lannister's force at this point. Um, but at a price, we don't actually hear the, the, the prices being listed off by the phrase, but we hear Catelyn recounting what Rob has to do as payment to cross the bridge. Uh, one, he has to send two young Freys to foster at Winterfell. Uh, two, Rob has to take a Frey squire. Three, Arya gets promised to marry to um, marry a young Frey when uh, she reaches age. And four, Rob has to also marry a Frey, though he does get his pick of the, the young, nubile, available Frey women to marry. And uh, he accepts this payment really, really well with uh, a lot of graciousness and dignity. And Catelyn has never been more impressed with him. 
bravery is one thing, but it takes a true man to understand the commitment of a marriage pact. So uh, they cross the bridge and they're on their way. And that's the end of the chapter. Yeehaw. Mm-hmm. Phrase. <laughs> Lovely folks. Mm-hmm. I so, agree. I think so, George probably had fun writing them. Yeah. And, and he also uses um, animal metaphors to describe them, which really helps uh, bring them to life in my mind. Just as the Manderleys look like walruses, the phrase look like little pink weasels. And it just <laughs> <laughs> gives you a little shudder of distaste to have to deal with them. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Mind you, weasels are really cute. But in this case, not cute. No. Imagine like a skinned weasel. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, gross. Yeah. yeah. And and I would remind our readers to really take advantage of the map at the beginning of the book to better understand what's going on just south of the neck here, because things uh, do get a little bit complicated. But um, uh, the twins are very clearly marked. River Run is very clearly marked and the King's Road. And uh, so is the, the Green Fork River. And that's really what, what you need to look at to better understand how these forces are moving. Yeah, there's really no way to get across the Green River no. without going through the twins. So mm. or the Green Fork. Sorry, the Green River is a, a river here in the western U.S., but <laughs> uh, the Green Fork. Yes, I they might need it. Too. Yeah, they do. So a uh, very, very powerful stronghold there. Yeah, I, I would also note while you're telling people to reference the map, Sakansus Mappas, uh, mm-hmm. there's a really big – so the last time we saw Taiwan and his force uh, – they're at the crossroads. See you at the crossroads, crossroads, crossroads. And uh, these guys are up at the Twins. There is a huge expanse of miles, or leagues as they use, between where Rob's army is and where Tywin's army is. And they describe the Blackfish with like 50 guys or whatever, and Tywin's outriders kind of having little skirmishes and coming across each other. But I, I don't know. I, I find it really hard to believe that, that these guys are communicating across this great distance without riders. It just seems too great a distance. They're a really long way away. If these armies were to actually march toward each other, it would take a long damn time for them to meet up. And I should do the calculations, but because we have a spreadsheet that, that guesstimates how long it would take armies to travel that far. Um, I'll have that ready for next episode. I, yeah, it's I, about, according to the interactive map we use, it's about 650 miles between the Neck, or Greywater Watch, and Heron Hall. So Right, so you can move on a horse like 20 miles a day, but when you have uh, a lot of them and an army and, and uh, people following that army yeah. to support it like food and stuff you're probably moving about 10 miles a day so it is super slow going and at this point i'm gonna just throw out a little plug there i i feel like this is a good example of george not being like of military origins maybe some of his um Movements and counts and estimates are a little off, but there is a really good website called The Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. Uh, we'll we'll put a link up on our Tumblr uh, and our Twitter um, that has a ton of great essays on just like like 
well, the wars and politics of ice of Westeros and the world of ice and fire um, that help make uh, the make movement sense. of these armies a little more realistic yeah. and make sense. Yeah. 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 Our friend Brendan Blackfish is uh, is is well versed in in both a Song of Ice and Fire and um, war tactics and and things of that nature, and he does a fantastic job along with his cohorts mm-hmm. there. So definitely check it out. Anyway, sorry, uh, I realize that's just a distracting annoyance from my side, but I just wanted to bring it up. <laughs> Stop it. Sorry. So, uh, so where would you like to go? I, I really liked how Brooke described it uh, once, where she said that you can almost hear the record scratch when Catelyn tells Rob he has to marry a fray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'm reminded of, uh, uh, Tom Cruise, uh, in, uh, Few Good Men. And the hits just keep on coming. And the hits just keep on coming. It's just like one after another. Okay. You gotta have a phrase, Squire. Okay. We're gonna host two phrase up at Winterfell. Okay. Arya's got to marry a Frey dude. Okay, last one. The, the hits just keep on coming. Yeah, she saved that one for last. Yeah, really nice, <laughs> nice mom. Nice delivery, Thanks. mom. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's also... And I like how he doesn't even bat an eye that his sister has to marry a Frey. He's like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah whatever. She won't like that. <laughs> she won't like that. <laughs> yeah. Just wait. It's a really steep price to pay, though. Your first heir in giving his hand away to... What is, I mean, they're a reasonably powerful family. We've talked about how powerful, you know, that crossing is, but man, that's oh, just a he, lot to give up. He knows he can do it, right? Yeah, they're he knows they have, as well as Rob does that they need to cross, and so he can charge whatever he wants. You know, it's the same reason Disneyland can charge twenty bucks for a rain poncho. Uh, it's <laughs> wow. Do you uh, recently buy some ponchos? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from a man do you have them now bitten. displayed in your living room? They were so Once. expensive. Once bitten, twice shy, eh, Matt? You're going to bring your own poncho You're going to wear that poncho, and you're going to like it. <laughs> My kids are, like, wearing them to school now and you're stuff. You're sleeping in the poncho. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to keep them and pass them on to their kids. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. Uh, Excuse me. We, we talked about Walter being a rat. He's a creepy, creepy dude. And I agree with you, Brooke. I think George loves writing this guy. So much fun uh, to listen to this guy talk, just the way he approaches everything. Just that he's oh, yeah. he's right and he has the power and uh, his little humor and sarcasm and disgusting little digs at people. And How I mean, he hits he hits on Catelyn in front of the whole court, saying maybe she's got uh, right. designs on my fidelity. <laughs> no, one, <laughs> no one's laughing. <laughs> no one talks about the strength of their seed more than Walter Frey. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he's right up there with uh with with Baelish on our on our creepers list. And also yeah. I think he wins the potency award. He so definitely far. does. Yeah. Well, like, you know. Oh. At there, least there he is, can back it up. I won't spoil it, but there is a challenger to that potency award, but we haven't got there yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a guy at work. His wife had a kid nine months later, pregnant again. Or or that like a month later, another kid. And now she's having their third kid, they're all nine months apart or however many months it is. Do we need to like give them some sort of lesson on I don't know. <laughs> well our this I'll, is how I'll you tell do a quick it. side story again. Or don't for those do that it. don't know we all work at the same company. 
and our company has uh, a good sense of humor. They even make their own condoms. And uh, one person in our office... Thought that they work. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. One person in our office was given uh, several condoms by the owner of our company uh, when he found out how many kids he had. It's a very funny story. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. Down there in your office. Oh, yep. there's some high numbers. There are some high numbers in our office. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Uh... Uh, they bring up the fostering thing again. Do we want to talk about that? I... Well, it appears that uh, there's two sides and different people know about the different sides. Well, One side is that Robert was to be fostered with the Aarons and the others with the Lannister, or excuse me, with the Baratheons at Storm's End and the others with the Lannisters. Mm. I just don't understand why it matters. It didn't happen. What What are we supposed to take from it? Like, he has beaten this to death. It's the third time he's mentioned it. And and the character hearing it has been surprised to hear it that he's brought up, and I don't understand what the big deal is. Are we supposed I, to I, learn something from it? Nothing of super importance. It seems at this point there's nothing that changes the story. I can see some reason why it would be important. Um, you can you can clearly see if this is true. Uh, some Lannisters making a move on the East or the Vale, you know, with Jamie being mar- n- married, named the Warden of the East, and then them also trying to foster little Robert A, to borrow uh, Scott's nickname of Big Bobby B. We've got little Robert A. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can clearly see that maybe there's some Lannister hunger for the East. I can imagine that he would, uh, maybe Tywin wants to marry little Robert to... Um, his daughter or, or his granddaughter, Marcella, perhaps, mm. and forge an alliance that way. I don't. But I, but to your point, Scott, I don't see anything story changing. I um, I just thought of this, this just now. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. So I do. Maybe because Aaron found out that the Lannister children were bastards, he knew that the path to succession of the crown passed through the Baratheon side of Stannis and not through the Lannister side. And so he changed his mind about where to foster the kids. And it's supposed to be meant as evidence for Catelyn or somebody, maybe the reader, to believe the, tr- the truth about the Lannister children actually being bastards. Do you follow me? I like that. No, I, I do. I like that. The one hiccup that we haven't, that hasn't been revealed to us yet at this point in the story is... Which came first, the Lannister um, uh, war- warding to the Lannisters, yeah. if that's what you'd call it, or the Baratheon one? Good point, yep. We can perhaps discuss in Davos After Dark, but uh, we don't know at this point yet who was first, who was the first choice. Yeah, true. And it didn't happen either way, so it's just a weird thing for him to keep yeah. bringing us along with. They keep bringing it up, yeah. It's been mm. brought up enough time where you think this should be important, but you have no idea how yet be good to take a closer look at that pattern or see if somebody has. Yeah. Right. All right. Uh, we're uh, we're about to Davos after dark time, unless you guys have anything you want to add for this uh, Catelyn chapter. Oh, uh, I don't. Nope. I actually do. Sorry. Um, just want to hit home the last point. Ra- when, when they're marching across the twins, he has separated his army based on the plan that they drew up with Catelyn. So he's, you know, uh, she uses the line. That Things are moving the forward. Right? Yep. He's rolled the dice. the The horse have gone to uh, to River Run, and the the main foot of his army has gone south to meet Tywin. I thought you said the whores have gone to River Run. <laughs> Hopefully, them too. Hopefully. All right, Davos after dark time. 
So episode 13 will include John's 8th chapter, Daenerys' 7th, uh, Tyrion's 8th, Catelyn's 10th, and another Daenerys' 8th. I think that's the first time we've had two Jan- Danny chapters uh, in one episode, which is good because we didn't get any, her, any of her this week. So that's chapter 60 to 64. All right. First episode of the new year. First episode of the new year. Although actually this one will probably release in the new year. First one recorded in the new year. This one will release, I think, in on the 5th, won't it? Yes. yes. Anyway. Uh, all right, let's move on to Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. Lots of good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to yeah. talk about the tourney Never at Harren Hall? I'm letting you the... run this one, Scatty. All right. Tourney at Harren Hall, the crown of blue roses. Um, so... This feels like damning evidence. <laughs> of what? Especially the, in the proximity of how of his thought process. Mm-hmm. The tourney of Harren Hall... Is very close to his thoughts about John. <laughs> yeah, they are right there. Although they get brought up for different reasons. One of them is just a dream. The other one gets brought sure. up because of what Varys says about going to join the Wall. But they are close in proximity, number of pages. But um, yeah, it's another it's another building block uh, towards RLJ. Um, yeah, and towards the promises that he wasn't able to keep. Yeah. So do you want? Do you guys? Um, I really wasn't uh, trying to hold back. I, I don't think we really... I, I really don't know what the broken promises are. Nor, nor do I. I think they could be a number of things. It, it, they could be what you're saying. If if he's given up on himself as making it out of here, uh, then maybe he thinks he can't fulfill the promises that he wanted to fulfill to Lyanna, right? About... we don't Again, we don't know what those promises are, but if they were... If they were uh, make John fulfill his destiny, <laughs> then he can't really do that when he's dead. I feel like they weren't as grand as make John fulfill his destiny because otherwise um, he wouldn't have named John as his bastard and hidden him under that identity. Right. So I think I... It's, it was more keep John safe. From whom? Well, one from Robert because Robert. he possibly would have killed John. So that promise no is absolutely not broken because Robert's dead. Right. Um, yeah. Just safe I think in general. It had, I, you know, he says promises, and so I wonder if there's a couple promises he had to make to Liana, yeah. and maybe one of them was that one day, you know, tell him about me. Yeah, tell him be. where he came from. Yeah. She probably knows that John's going to grow up in a really crappy situation. And, um, you know, she just says, you know, at least do this for me one day when you can. Tell him where he comes from. And he now doesn't feel like he's ever going to be able to do that. Yeah, fulfill his, his destiny and, was a little grandiose, but but yeah, <laughs> tell him who he is. I don't know. She yeah. knew of his destiny yet. Yeah, yeah right. So. Oh. Um. So here's the start of the most colorful wedding in the world. Oh, <laughs> Roos and Walder. In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting seeing them here sort of like in a more innocent light. Walter Frey, just a, a crotchety old man who's who's being ridiculous about a bridge crossing and Ruse Bolton being a competent and reliable bannerman. Just to know what happens in the future yeah. is so scary. And it makes reading about them now fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know, know it's when... interesting, too, um, that if it, it's it's in the text. It's right there. Walder says, if Tywin wants my help, you should ask for it. Well, guess what? He asks for it. 
and uh, Ray gives it, <laughs> and that's it. It's it's, uh, it's the bloodiest wedding ever. I want to know when Roos went bad. I, he's always kind of been. I think he's been a little off, right? I think that's uh, yeah. pretty obvious. But yeah. When did when did he decide that he was done with this Stark stuff and well, going to help the Lannisters? I don't know that we know. Think on this: if Catelyn doesn't tell Rob not to use the Great John as the leader of the southern part of the the the, the force going to meet Tywin, Roos mm-hmm. doesn't have control of the army. Can't completely. Uh, sabotage that part of the army and everything changes from that side of the campaign. Mm. If Kat doesn't give that shitty advice of trusting Ruse Bolton, <gasps> sorry, <laughs> it's true. It's true. The guy turns out to be a complete snake. Great John is totally 2020, loyal. though. Yeah. 2020. No, no, absolutely. I'm just saying, if, if she if she hadn't given that advice, what would it's happen? True, yeah. Right. Uh, I don't remember enough of the details of uh, Ruse's shenanigans down there, but... Uh... <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll paint it for you. He basically he basically sends men out on a suicide mission to take Duskendale, of very of basically no military value. And uh, our friend over at Wars and of Ice and Fire, uh, Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, covered this a little bit um, about about them sending them out there. I think, if I remember right. But uh, there's there's like no military value to that point, and he just sends part of the force over there to get the Glovers get captured, um, Tall Hearts too, or something. Basically they get routed and, um, he, he kept his own men in reserve and sent other Northmen off to die is essentially what he did. Right. So that probably answers my question about when did Roos decide he was not going to do the Stark thing. Yeah, Hmm. it, it does beg an interesting question of whether he's just doing that on his own or whether he's already been contacted by somebody. Um, Right. To, to throw in the towel, but it's, yeah, I, I do, you know, I'll, you, you can always wonder, uh, what would have happened if, if great John had been given the command. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And of course you're blaming Catelyn. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not really blame. It, it's just, well, maybe it is. I mean, she misread him, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, but, but also she was trying to encourage Rob to think on his own. So, Rob had thought on his own. He thought great, John, and she said no. (laughs) She's like, eh, think again. (laughs) It could have been even more disastrous. We'll never know. True. Bruce is scary. Like, they say that even though he speaks with such this this quiet voice that people just are scared to death of him, and everyone gets quiet when he talks, and he's probably rather imposing. Um has the appearance of someone who can do the job that they want him to do. Oh yeah. Yeah. George is really good at that. I mean like timid son of timid, one thing, burning your own eye out to prove your, your, uh, your (laughs) strength, uh, warrior strength is one thing. Skinning your enemies alive. Quite another. (laughs) Yeah. There's two extremes of, of creepy scariness. Speaking yeah. of Timmit, that doesn't sound like a good idea for a guy who makes his living fighting to yeah. cut out your eye. Seems like it would throw off like you know, depth perception and stuff a little bit. I don't know. It, you know what? It would make sense if by doing that you became chief and didn't have to fight. <laughs> there you but go. when the chief still has to fight, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Speaking of fighting, can we uh, can we just engage in some hero worship over Barristan Selmy for just a second? 
I, Go ahead. I love the way he takes off. And then we later find out that true to being the commander of the Kingsguard, he just openly insulted the uh, the Lannisters. Talks about how Stannis is supposed to be the true heir. But before running off, as he should have, he goes back to the White Tower and writes about his dismissal in the White Book, fills things out, packs up his desk, and then leaves. And then he, like, wastes, like, a whole handful of Jano Slint's dudes all by himself. I just think it's so cool. I, just, I love <laughs> I the guy. I didn't even remember that until I read it in your notes. But yeah, I'm excited he, uh, to read about it now. I think he talks about it in – it's not in this book. It's yeah, it's a later recollection. Later. I think it's in yeah. A Dance with Dragons. Yeah. He remembers doing it and – or he talks about it to Danny or something, and right. he just yeah, cuts a bunch of guys up. And it's interesting. Um, I never thought that when he first got kicked off of the Kingsguard, he proclaimed Stannis the true king. But he still went to Danny. Do you guys remember what the the catalyst for that one was? Well, well I the think... reason he gives Danny whether he's lying or not is that he did recognize that there is still a Targaryen. And that's who he supported initially. Remember in Robert's Rebellion, he was on the side of the Targaryens. Right. And so he had to go back to them. That's what he tells Danny when he's being accused of misleading her and stuff. So that might be a little bit of lip service, but that's what he claims. Yeah, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he says it like, you know what, I never should have I never should have knelt for Robert. I was a man of principle, and this is who I should have been following the whole time. And... Um, and, and so he goes there. And I don't remember from this chapter whether he says Stannis is the rightful ruler or just that Stannis is going to take the throne from you, <laughs> um, rightfully or no. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, you know, and maybe he just he has to think about it for a little while. But Selmy is a badass. I love him. How about Agreed. Joff showing some, uh, some kingly uh, cleverness uh, in his kind of one of his first decisions as king? Promises Sansa... That she, that he'll give her father mercy, mm-hmm. knowing full well that mercy can just be a quick death, and not torture or punishment or other things. Oh yeah, I wanted to talk about this in the in the regular portion of the podcast of that whole exchange and whether it was rehearsed or not. I think it was. <laughs> Meaning, you think Cersei knew Sansa was going to ask and told Joff how to respond? I think she had a good idea of, you know, this will probably come up, Joffrey. Sansa's going to be in court. Here's what you do. Yeah. I wonder. It's a good point. In which case, Joff isn't clever. Yeah, I don't know if he has the talent for that. Uh. For being clever? Um, For remembering a rehearsed uh, response. Wow, you give him no credit. (laughs) <laughs> he can't even remember I what really he's told. I really don't. I really feel like like he's just like a loose live wire at the end of a um, a power line that Cersei is holding. Interesting. Like a, all she can do is really that's aim, a really good description. I like aim that. him in the direction that she wants, but he's still gonna go crazy. But he hasn't revealed himself that true nature fully yet. I don't think. Um, um, at least, at, at least to Cersei, to us he has, you know. No, you know. doesn't because when he when he demands that uh, Ned be beheaded, Cersei didn't want that. Yeah, right. But he hasn't so, revealed okay. that yet. It hasn't happened but, yet. But no. But yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I'm talking to this point. Okay. okay. At, at this point of the story, yeah, sure. In our Davos after darkness, yeah, we know that he's. He's exactly how you described him, and I love that the live yeah. wire in Cersei's hand. Yeah. Uh, but. Like uh, 
at this point, I don't even know that Cersei knows the true nature of Joffrey, which is just horrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think they, I think everyone comes to see it at the at the yeah. head beheading, and I think that's his coming out party to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> this kid is. Well, because before now he up. hasn't really had any power, right? Not really. Not right. not real power. It's all been kind of through his mom. He sees he can actually get shit done now by just saying stuff, right? And he sees it in this in this chapter we read today. I want that guy arrested, and Slint's like, "Oh, uh, okay, I'll go get him." You know, yep. like it's interesting. Well, uh, good Davos after dark time. Yeah, indeed. Mm. All right, go go to our sign off. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And this is Brooke signing off, saying Happy New Year, and may you have a blessed 2015. This is Matt wanting to remind Sansa that there's there's other boys, and you can make them like you. <laughs> and this is Scad as Admiral Adama. Thanking Rob for reminding everyone that sometimes you just have to roll a hard six. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Thanks. Good night.